This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 668. This week, we welcome Dr. Bill Southern, Chris McRutt, and Dr. Michael Berg. We're going to talk about their recent paper called Misalignment Between Clinical Mold Antigen Extracts and Airborne Molds Found in Water-Damaged Homes. It's a mouthful, but it's an interesting study. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget, after the show, you can continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com. April Air, April, AIRE.com. Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Paula Shank, University of Connecticut Health Center, who was first to identify the Spanish flu as the cause of the death of 12,000 Australians in the year 1919. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, June 24, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in the precision instrumentation for monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the small organic molecules which only stimulate antibody production when combined with a bigger molecule. Back to you, Joe. All right. So we've got Dr. Bill Southern, a certified industrial hygienist, lead AP, and the chief operating officer of Microecologies, Inc., a New York City-based indoor environmental consulting firm he founded in 1993. His doctorate is in public health from the University of New York and is a recognized contributor to New York City, HUD, World Health Organization, and other guidance documents. Uh, Chris McRutt is a senior investigator at Microoncologies, Inc., and he has a master's degree in environmental and occupational science from Hunter College, where he was awarded the prestigious National Institute of Safety and Health's NIOSH Scholarship. Dr. Michael Berg is the technical director of Eurofin's Built Environment Testing USA. His PhD is in biology from the Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany. Welcome, gentlemen, and let's start with you, Bill. It's been too long, by the way. 2013, we had you on with your undercover report there, and uh, you went into some homes and did some investigation. We'll put that in the blog so people can link to that. Still a good show. What the, what got you interested in this misalignment between antigen extracts and airborne molds found in water-damaged homes? Well, as, as a practice, um, Joe, we uh, ask our clients whether they're suffering from asthma or any respiratory conditions, and um, they frequently answer yes, and that is the motivation for their asking us to conduct the indoor air quality investigation for, um, to begin with. And when they answer positively, uh, we uh, ask them if they've had allergy testing for mold, and they frequently will say, um, yes, I have. And, um, and uh, that in, makes us interested in knowing what those results were, and, and we ask uh, for copies of the um, the uh, allergist or pulmonologist's uh, report, 
um, that um, that shows what uh, the clinical community found that they're allergic to. And we've noticed for many years, as I think many practitioners have, that um, that what the clinical community is looking for is very narrow. In uh, Aspergillus, they're, they're looking for Aspergillus uh, niger and Aspergillus fumigatus, whereas we see Aspergillus um, bursicolorid, Aspergillus sedawi, um, you know, much more frequently um, than we, we do the uh, anti the, the allergens, uh, the species specific allergens that the clinical community is looking for. And similarly on on, on penicillium, we see that the um, that the clinical community is looking for penicillium chrysogenum, which is you know the most famous um, uh, micro produces the most famous mycotoxins of all time, which is penicillin, um, but has little to do with what we find in the indoor environment of water damaged homes. So there are five other species that we find frequently uh, in, in water damaged homes. And um, we, we, that gave us an idea that we should really try to analyze um, um, a large set of data that would help us to understand whether what we're finding uh, is, uh, is uh, validatable um, through the um, uh, analysis of data. And that led you that looking for that large data set to uh, Michael Berg and, and the Eurofins group. And uh, maybe, Michael, if you could tell us a little bit about your relationship with, uh, with Bill and his group and um, how you contributed to this research. Sure. <clears throat> so um, I've known Bill for quite some time now. So we've been working together uh, here and there on, on small research programs. And, and uh, Bill's always interested in, in stuff that he thinks is interesting and then he calls me up and we'll discuss it and so so uh, this was one of those projects where uh, bill started out uh, taking the initiative and, and coming to us and, and uh, pitching the idea and said hey you guys have a big data set on on culture data and we're like yeah sure we do right so we we uh, uh, our company is uh, uh if you probably know most of the legacy uh, companies that had formed this Eurofins built environment group now that includes uh, EM Lab and then PNK Microbiology Services, Aerotech, so all the, the big names in IAQ basically are under uh, this roof now, or some of them at least. So we have a significant data set on culture testing, and uh, we looked at that. So we have a, a, our data guru, Dan Devine, who is on the paper did most of the legwork on kind of pulling the data out of our system and then providing it back to Bill and, and his team. And you know, he did a tremendous job on sifting through it, analyzing it and, and looking at what makes sense to include. And, and uh, finally we came up with a list of what, what are the most common uh, fungal species indoors in what we call complaint homes versus the outdoor species. And I think it's a, it's a good set of data that we want to provide back to the clinical uh, folks to take a look at and then maybe uh, decide if they want to do some more research on, on the allergen extracts and tests. And I, I think we should clarify for our audience that you, you were looking at culture-based because you needed to have the species to, because the extracts are based on the species, not just the genera of mold. Uh, and then, Chris, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your role in this work and uh, with microecologies. Sure, Joe. Um, I've been with microecologies for 10 years now. I'm a senior environmental investigator. I've conducted probably over a thousand indoor environmental investigations at this point, generally involving um, indoor air quality issues and health complaints from residents. And so, you know, that's been my primary role at microecologies, but I've also been involved with um, our research team, which also includes uh, physician Nazarin Kandekar. And we've been involved in a lot of interesting projects over the years. And um, I was fortunate enough to be brought into this project to help with the um, analysis of the database and the interpretation of the data primarily. And Bill, maybe you could just quickly mention the other people that were part of this paper. Uh, I notice here we, we mentioned, um, of course, Chris, and I think we mentioned Dan Devine, oh no, Nazarin Kandekar, but uh, there's also Robert Kaner and Sarah L. O'Byrne. Can you tell us a little bit about their role? Sure. Uh, Dr. Robert Kaner is um, um, a pulmonologist with uh, Wild Cornell um, here in New York. 
um, and and he um, is, is a physician who has referred a, a number of cases to us over the years, and um, we were um, able to, in, in, in at least a number of cases, uh, find mold conditions uh, in the homes of his patients that were not obvious, um, that were um, hidden behind walls and built-ins or in air conditioning systems. And, uh, and, and we were able to, to arrange to have those conditions remediated. Um, and we were actually able to see uh, a handful of his patients uh, who were suffering from hypersensitivity pneumonitis or even conditions that had been diagnosed as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis um, managed to stage substantial recoveries uh, where they could resume um, uh, their, their normal lives. And so he um, became a true believer in, in the um, uh, concept that um, if um, we can identify uh, a, a mold problem in the home of a person suffering from um, one of those conditions that um, there's a good chance that um, th those uh, environmental conditions can be remedied. Sometimes that might involve uh, uh, occupant relocation on, on a temporary basis, but um, by and large, we've been able to, um, to, to uh, uh, oversee the remediation efforts and make sure that um, the residences are adequate, uh, adequately cleaned to enable the, or remediated to make sure that the um, occupants can safely reoccupy. Um, so Dr. Kainer um, was, was a big supporter and he's a big supporter of um, knowing that um, you can't um, uh, identify the need for an environmental investigation unless you do a, a, a valid um, um, uh, uh, mold antigen test. Um, and, and he recognizes the fact that right now the, um, there's limitations to the validity of, of the testing that's currently done. So he uh, is a major supporter of um, um, tr trying to change that paradigm. Um, and uh, Sarah O'Byrne uh, is also a, uh, a pulmonologist. She, she uh, in the beginning, was because it took us five years to really put all this data together and analyze it and, and uh, present this paper. Um, I guess in, in 20, I, we started 2018, so I guess we were working on it for about four years. Um, she was with Weill Cornell also. Um, but uh, she since has moved back to Ireland and she is um, working as a pulmonologist in Ireland. And, and she was able to um, contribute substantially to the study, including um, uh, assessing the antigen extract that, that are used to uh, evaluate mold sensitivities um, in Europe. And she found that the um, antigen extracts used in Europe are very similar um, uh, to the antigen extracts used in the uh, clinical community in the United States for the assessment of mold allergies. All right, let's dig down into that data a little bit more. We're going to go to table one from the paper, John. And, and this was, um, well, let me, let me have Chris explain this if we could. Chris, these are the types of uh, indications that you, you broke it down into. Can you explain what it is and why? Sure. These categories come from a uh, kind of retrospective questionnaire that was issued to environmental practitioners um, who use Eurofins, MLAP, P, and K. And so we were interested in the reasons uh, primarily for the testing that they were requested con to conduct. And so it's broken down into health concerns from the residents, um, visible water damage and mold growth or visible dampness, uh, musty and mold growth odors, or proactive evaluations, you know, which could include things like uh, pre-purchase inspections or issues that might not be um, immediately obvious you know, to the naked eye. And so you'll see that you know, the high percentage, 58% of the answers on these questionnaires came back as um, being driven by health concerns from the residents. And Chris, was there only, could they only choose one of these options? I believe they had multiple options here. And then, Michael, you may, okay. may be able to correct me on that. That's correct. Right. Yeah, yes, they, that's they could, correct. They, 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 could, they, could, they were asked to indicate the primary reason why okay. um, um, uh, they, they, they had requested that the investigation be conducted. And they, so, they, they, they did give multiple answers, but pri the, the primary um, was combined with the visible fungi or water, visible water damage or moldy conditions and a high, high percentage of cases. Interesting. Let's go to the next 
table in here, John. I want to get Dr. Berg to comment on this particular. This is a comparison of indoor and outdoor data in the aspergillus only. So let's first explain why aspergillus only database versus other database exists at all, Mike. Yes. So ideally, of course, we would have um, identified all the species that we can for every sample that we receive. But uh, the reality of uh, of commercial testing is there's also price to it. So uh, what what we do in in our company, we offer a test where we only uh, identify to the species level, the aspergillus uh, genera, and then all the others are typically to, to a genus level identification. Uh, but we do offer the more extensive, uh, what we call the full speciation testing. And when you look at the, the actual numbers that we compiled on that, the uh, aspergillus only database or aspergillus speciation only to be a little more correct here, uh, it's a lot larger database because just the test is just cheaper to, to uh, perform and also for the clients to buy. So, so we have a, a large data set on aspergillus uh, species uh, by sorted out by species, then we have a, a little smaller set, but still significant and large of several thousand samples on a full speciation. So let's show the full one, John. Mm-hmm. We're going to go over to the full speciation. That's the next table, John. There we go. And you can see here, you're breaking it down into the species, to the species level, more types of mold. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, we looked at this, how this correlates, right? So, so the ranking stays the same. There may be a, a small differences in, in the actual uh, average concentration and what we call the mean exposure, but uh, the ranking stays the same and overall the numbers were very similar. So we're, we're pretty confident that um, what we find here, even in the smaller set, also translates uh, to the larger. And in this, on this table, several of the penicillium are, are bold. What's the reason for that? So we were looking at those that are, of course, uh, uh, of a ranking, which ones are the most common indoors in what we call complaint homes uh, from the top to uh, going downwards. And then we made a cutoff at, uh, we, we defined the mean exposure as the average concentration in those homes where we did find uh, moles times the percentage of where, where those molds are detected. So if you had uh, an average concentration of 200 spores in 50% of the home, the mean exposure, meaning the overall uh, data set uh, average or, or average concentration would then be half of that because it was only found in half of the homes. So the mean exposure really kind of uh, categorizes the, the risk for the general population. So how often is that uh, is the general population in complaint homes exposed to, to this, uh, or what concentrations are they exposed to? It takes both in, uh, into consideration, both the um, percentage of uh, finding it, but also the concentration that we have. And based on that, we, we defined a cutoff of 10. So this is arbitrary, right? So we said, well, let's look at everything that has a mean exposure over 10. And then we have those five come up basically. I see. And, you know, Bill, it's it's a little unusual that today indoor environmentalists are doing culture samples. As I, I talked to Michael before the show, and at, at Eurofins, they're getting a lot more spore trap type samples in than culture samples. I'm wondering um, why your group continues to do, if you do, uh, culture type sampling as much as you do. Is it because of the type of doctors you work with, or is this something that you feel maybe more indoor environmentalists should be doing in art? I, I think uh, in, in our case, we, uh, we, we uh, have a high percentage of our business that's um, coming to us as a result of physician referral. So um, on our physician referral business, um, we, um, we think it's appropriate um, to, um, to do uh, cultural type air samples. And, and we always do um, full speciation. Um, so that we we can see um, the penicillium species breakdowns uh, as well as the, the aspergillus breakdowns, and in fact the the article um, in, you know, I think you, you you can see that in the in the data um, has, has established that the um, mean concentration levels for um, the penicillium species uh, when you aggregate them um, are 
around three times higher than the, um, the, the aggregate of the Aspergillus species. So we, we, we see Aspergillus um, you know, being less of a major player um, with uh, indoor exposure um, that is provoking um, health complaints we're likely to be um, um, than, than with um, Aspergillus. So we think uh, penicillin has, has taken the short end um, and uh, it, it should be recognized that uh, penicillin is a major player um, with both um, allergies and with hypersensitivity uh, pneumonitis uh, with asthma uh, and other respiratory conditions. Chris, uh, you, you're being out in the field as much as you are. I love these shows when we try to bring, you know, research to practice. Um, I'm just wondering what you're in mostly, I believe, in the New York City and surrounding areas. So you've got a lot of, you know, large apartment buildings and so on. What are, what are some of the most common hidden mold issues that you run into out there in the field? Yeah, it's a really good question, Joe. And, you know, there, there are certainly um, indoor moisture sources, plumbing-related leaks, facade-related leaks that can result in hidden mold growth conditions, you know, particularly um, hidden on the back sides of buildings that are constructed of uh, sheetrock. But I'd say that, you know, a major um, source of indoor mold growth are HVAC systems. Um, it's something that we see frequently in residential housing within um, fan coil or PTAC units or central HVAC systems, um, even for units that are regularly serviced, but not maybe given as close attention as they need to. Um, that's you know, a primary uh, location for hidden mold growth conditions. And do you commonly, are you able to uh, locate these visually or do you almost always take samples of say, for instance, the coil, where do you sample? Do you sample on the coil itself or on the, uh, on maybe the registers uh, associated with the HVAC system? Yeah, so the, the investigations we do are always a combination of a, a thorough physical inspection and supplemented by testing. You know, it's not something that we solely rely on air sampling um, to determine whether we have issues. So really the, the most important components are um, visual indications where we can see olfactory evaluations, odors um, within the space, uh, thorough moisture evaluation using handheld moisture meters, sometimes in conjunction with thermal imaging to pinpoint where there are likely to be issues. And, you know, based on our physical findings, that will usually um, inform our sampling plan. And, you know, the sampling plan is also driven by uh, locations of occupant complaints, you know, if they've reported odors or if they've reported that they experience symptoms when spending time in certain areas of the space. Um, that will help guide where we take air samples. And then as far as conducting things like surface sampling from HVAC systems, as you just described, I mean, really, in order to identify the issues, you, you have to get in there. And so um, it requires us to dig a lot deeper than, you know, some people may and to open up um, HVAC systems to actually get into the blower wheels and coil compartments to visually inspect those um, components first. And based on what we see there, you know, we may conduct surface sampling from components that have suspect discolorations or we think could be growth or, you know, specifically in these cases where we're dealing with um, health complaints that could be allergy driven, um, sampling them for analysis for culture analysis so we can really know what um, specific species of mold are within those areas. I'm curious, uh, I just read an article by Jeff May who wrote, you know, my house is killing me. You, you guys I know are all familiar with Jeff. And he was talking about uh, finding a lot of mold issues in stacked fan coil units. I'm not that familiar with that terminology, stacked fan coil units. I'm assuming that means that in an apartment building, there's fan coil units basically stacked on top of each other in each apartment. I was curious, do you find that you have more problems in lower floors or upper floors in those types of situations, or is there no difference? I don't think we've seen a whole lot of variation um, throughout the building. I mean, these conditions are driven you know, by maintenance of these units, and if they're poorly maintained, it comes down to the individual unit owners as to what's going to be going on there. Um, I'm not aware that you know a different floor of a building might be subject to um, things like higher levels of condensation or anything like that. Um, Bill, you may want, want to weigh in on that. 
No, I, I think uh, the, the, the idea of a stacked fan core unit, he may be talking about what we see in mechanical closets where um, we have the, um, the, the um, filter and the blower wheel in, 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 uh, that, that, uh, in the lower compartment that's then pushing uh, the, the air up into the next section where the coil is and then um, out into the room. But those configurations are, they're, they're so varied. Many times we'll have the, the blow wheel at the very um, tail end of the system and it is pulling the, the moisture through the, the, the coil and actually distributing it through the duct system. So um, we have, um, we've seen so many situations um, in hard to get to um, interior line duct work where we have mosaics of mold um, that are um, uh, an indication of, of, of gross contamination. When we have people that, that are suffering from um, respiratory conditions that um, that had no idea that this was going on in their apartment, um, and we have other situations where it's just very difficult to to navigate into that narrow space to be able to open up the units and be able to see what's going on inside, but. Um, um, it, it needs to be done, and, and it's not only um, from an investigator's standpoint, but there needs to be a realization from people who are installing these units that um, they need to install them in a way that allows them to be accessed for uh, inspection and for um, hygienic maintenance uh, as, uh, as they go forward. And um, unfortunately, um, in a very large percentage of cases, um, the way these units are installed makes both the inspection and the hygienic maintenance um, um, difficult or in some cases uh, impractical or impossible. All right. I just, I, I'm always curious when people were dealing with, you know, very uh, highly populated, very condensed areas like you guys, you know, what kind of specific problems you're running into in, in these indoor environments. But let's go back to the paper. I'd like to kind of go to that next table, John. And this is where we go into the antigens. It's table four, the misalignment. And then let's get Michael, if you would, to kind of walk us through this particular table and talk about what, what the results showed, essentially. Yeah, that's really the, the contribution from the clinical uh, partners here, too, to uh, identify what, what's commonly used with the uh, allergen uh, panels. So if, if you go into an, an at least from my understanding, if you go into an allergist and then you get a mold uh, allergy test done, then they use a, a mix of extracts. Uh, and we, they looked at the, the major manufacturer of those uh, type of extracts, uh, including most people are probably familiar, Quest LabCorp, uh, Aerop is one that, I mean, I, I haven't heard before, but now that I know that they're very common <laughs> manufacturer of allergen extracts, uh, Stalagen Screen Lab, Polyster Steyer Allergy Labs, and, and uh, ALK Abello. So all of those are manufacturers and, and they mix the different uh, uh, allergen extracts in, in the mold allergens. And we, we looked at, or our clinical partners looked at, what do they put in there? And, and then uh, we found that what we find to be the most common species in complaint homes indoors in moldy damp homes are not very well represented in fact the, the top out of the top eight uh, there was only one uh, aspergillus niger that was uh, uh, represented in that uh, and um, penicillin chrysogenum if you look at that so common one that came in as number six on, on our table as a uh, uh, in the top species of, of uh, uh, that we find in, in those homes. So uh, summary, the alignment isn't very good. That was our point that we wanted to make to the, the clinical community uh, that we can provide that data from our testing from the environmental side to the clinical community. And then uh, maybe that'll trigger some uh, rethinking, some extra testing, or maybe some, some uh, reformulating of the allergen extracts. So that's kind of the idea here. And Bill, would you like to add anything there? No, I, I was just seeing, uh, Joe, that um, we got a message from, I think, a person named Linda uh, asking about the, the subject we talked about just a moment ago, which is um, the HVAC units and, and the hidden mold growth problem. And just wanted to uh, get back to her and, 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 and the group and, and say that, uh, by and large, um, the, the moisture that's feeding uh, the mold growth in HVAC systems um, 
is condensation. So it's either condensation from poorly insulated um, uh, chilled water lines in, in large buildings uh, or uh, in insulation on the uh, refrigerant feed lines um, um, that where these, these, uh, these pipes are not properly insulated and, uh, and they drip on the surrounding surfaces. Um, and it's just a wet place. You know, the, we have water dripping down the coils um, by the nature of the beast. Um, and you know, as the warm air passes through a cold coil, you know, it can hold less moisture and the water drips down and drips into a condensate pan. Sometimes the condensate pan may not be functioning properly, but by and large, I think they, they probably are. But the blower wheel is blowing that moisture downstream and um, interior line duct work, which is so common, you know, is a curse. Um, and it, it's very susceptible um, to mold growth because we got dust settling on there. Everyone knows we have mold um, in, in, uh, in dust. And, um, and uh, uh, given the dark conditions and the moist conditions, um, we un almost unavoidably uh, have a, a mold condition that will develop over time. So um, another one of the things we, we, we hope we could have some influence on is the, the uh, reduction of the use of um, uh, fiberglass duct liner. Um, uh, so, but, but you know, to, to your question, I, I think uh, on, on, on table four, um, you know, this is the crux. Um, very um, uh, few antigen extracts are available, really only one for the major uh, eight species of mold that are found in the indoor environment of water damaged homes. So uh, it's, it's a pretty substantial mismatch. I want to come back to this table in just a minute. We've got to stop for halftime and thank our sponsors. We'll be right back with uh, Bill Southern, Chris McGrutt, and Michael Bart. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association iaqa.org the iicrc a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. Okay, let's start with uh, Bill. Were you at all, uh, when, when you finally co compiled all this data, were you at all surprised by what you found? I think we were surprised um, by the fact that um, penicillium uh, was substantially more predominant um, than aspergillus um, as genera. Um, and I think uh, you know, given that none of the, the major penicillium species that we um, found in water damaged homes are, are currently available as antigen extracts and that um, the, the predominance of, of, of penicillium over aspergillus is in the range of three to one in the indoor environment of water damaged homes, um, that that was a, a revelation to us. Michael, same question to you. Yeah, I, I would agree with uh, uh, what Bill is saying that, um, uh, you know, of course, um, 
when we looked at that list, I think it's it's well established in, in other literature that uh, the most common outdoors is Gladiosporium, and then people usually reference Penicillium aspergillus as, as the uh, most frequent uh, types of or uh, genus uh, of fungi that, that we find outdoors and indoors. And when we took that closer look, uh, I mean, Gladiosporium is very common outdoors, but uh, when we compare that to indoors, uh, it's more frequently found outdoors. And, and then the next uh, Penicillium aspergillus, uh, I think it was a little bit of a surprise to see Penicillium that strong. Uh, of course, when we look at the outdoor concentration, we, it kind of makes a little more sense that uh, uh, Chrysogenum, Penicillium Chrysogenum, if you look at outdoors, is, is quite significant there, but not, not the top one either. So uh, having those miss, missing from the, the allergen extracts uh, to me was, was quite a surprise, you know. I, you know, I keep in touch with a lot of our past guests. I emailed one of them about this particular show and, and they, you know, indicated that, you know, we've known for many years what the most dominant types of mold in water damaged buildings are. But I, I think what you've done here to add to this knowledge is, is very interesting in that you, you know, you, you combined it with whether or not these extracts were available to test for, you know, allergy to these most common water damage types of, of uh, mold. Bill, would you want to comment on that at all? Well, it's pretty well established, I think, in the uh, peer-reviewed literature that exposure to mold uh, is related to a substantially substantial increase in, in the um, uh, probability of, of, of asthma. And, uh, and you probably know, Joe, that there was a study done by Kirksmer back in uh, 2008, um, and, and it was referred to both in um, Kanchan Kittipun's article and, and by Mark Mandel, um, that you know, the guys that are, that are really at the top of, of the research game. Um, and uh, Kirksmer found uh, that uh, mold remediation um, uh, can result in a substantial decline in symptoms among asthmatic children, um, and enough so to, to support um, the, the fact uh, that um, mold remediation is, is essential uh, for people who suffer from these respiratory conditions. Um, and you, you can't um, remediate a problem until you identify it. Um, and uh, and it, we're not going to have the physician referrals to identify, um, uh, to, to have, have their patients um, spend the money uh, to have an invest, a mold investigation done, particularly if there's nothing that's obvious. Um, uh, in the absence of their knowing that they have an allergic sensitivity. Um, so this, this data really helps us to um, understand um, that uh, the uh, allergy reports that are being generated by the clinical community are, are, are deficient and, and it's depriving um, patients who um, could benefit from an environmental investigation. And if uh, that investigation finds that we have a mold problem, which frequently it will, um, deprives them of the benefits of having the remediation. John, could you scroll down just a little so I could see the indoor versus outdoor? I'm, I'm not seeing the top of this table. There you go. Indoor versus outdoor. Indoor. Okay. Um, Chris, I'm curious, what what's kind of jumped out at you from this particular table? Well, I think that uh, Bill and Michael did an excellent job you know, kind of breaking that down. Um, you know, the, the, what we were really trying to establish in this table is by showing that we have these statistically significant differences between the indoor and outdoor of um, these specific penicillium species, in this case, that are bolded. And, and that really um, allowed us to establish these as what we would consider to be the, the primary water damage related fungi that we you know, looked further at it through the study. You know, when I first looked at this, I thought, well, I wonder if it's not that when the initial allergy, the, the extracts were developed, they were more focused on outdoor mold exposure. Because, you know, when we look at allergies, we're typically thinking about 
you know, pollen and ragweed and tree pollen and grass pollen, these, these outdoor types of, of exposures. But from what I'm seeing, if we go to the next chart, um, these don't even, the extracts don't even match up well with the outdoor molds. Would that be accurate to say, Bill? That's interesting. Uh, I, I think they match up a little bit better, um, but not particularly well. And I, I think you are right. That it's hard to, hard to understand um, why those antigen extracts um, were, were, were selected by the clinical community. But we do know, for example, that um, Aspergillus fumigatus um, is, is, is a common cause of nosocomial infections. So from a clinical standpoint, um, it, um, it, 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 it has some um, notoriety uh, in that field. And uh, just as Aspergillus flavus um, uh, has notoriety in the field um, because it produces um, aflatoxin B1. Uh, similarly with um, penic- penicillium, Chrysogenum, as we said, is the, is the species of, of penicillium that's used to commercially produce penicillin. Uh, so it, 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 it doesn't appear to have been a, a really sound um, a assessment of um, what people might be exposed to in, in either the outdoor or the indoor environment, but particularly the indoor environment um, uh, uh, when those selections were made. And those selections were made a long time ago, Joe, we're talking, there's been, um, this has been a static uh, set of antigen extracts um, for 40 or 50 years. And Mike, when you were talking about this particular table, we, there's allergists one through four. I, I don't recall. What, what is that one? Oh, this uh, Bill would know better than, than I do. That He probably knows well, them. <laughs> this is actually a... Um, uh, uh, actual practitioners that I think Dr. Kane and, and Bill uh, may knew. And exactly. Asked, uh, exactly, they, Mike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, these are um, um, you know, uh, allergists from the New York City area um, uh, and pulmonologists. Um, you know, the allergists do skin testing and the pulmonologists do serum testing. Uh, we, so we got a cross-section from some highly qualified uh, allergists of what they um, have um, uh, uh, in, uh, in their quivers to, to, to be able to shoot into people um, uh, for, for skin testing um, where, you know, they, 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 they look um, for reactions on the skin uh, as a result of in, injecting um, their patients generally with more than just mold al- allergens, but with other um, al- allergens as well. And then they, they, they look for this wheel and flare type reaction um, uh, that, that, indicates that um, that their patients are, are sensitive and they, they know, you know, um, which um, marks on the arm relate to which antigens that were uh, administered um, and, and, and they can, they can uh, determine uh, whether those patients are, are allergically sensitized to those allergens. Um, uh, but again, the, the allergen extracts they're using uh, are highly limited in terms of their validity. Let me kind of go through this again and see if I understand what you're saying here in this table for now. The ones that you found are most common are bolded, right, over in the fungus column. Michael, is that right, Chris? That's correct. Okay. Then as we go across, you went through the different manufacturers of the antigens, LabQuest being one, and then if they're looking at hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, I believe, is the HPP, you would get – Antigens of uh, Niger, but again, we're missing Sadawi and Versicolor, and excuse my lack of being able to pronounce these things. Um, in fact, you've only got one in that particular panel that matches up with what you find most commonly indoors. Yeah, and just, go- just, to, just to, to make sure, sure for clarity, the Quest uh, and Arab um, are laboratories, um, and, and they do serum testing. Okay. Um, okay. And the the stologens uh, Greer uh, and Hollis and Steyer and ALK Abello are, are the three um, antigen extract manufacturers. Um, they produce the uh, antigen extract that are used by Quest and Arup, um, and they also um, produce the antigen extracts that are used by the allergists. Have you either any of you had any contact with either the? 
the labs or the producers of the antigens to kind of try and figure out, okay, why is this misalignment taking place? I, I can say yes for, you know, Eurofins actually has a division on, on the uh, clinical testing side that, that um, uh, uses those also as a lab. So, uh, of course, we, we touch base with them also and, and ask them and, and um, uh, the response was, uh, it's not going to be an easy change. They said, you may be onto something here, but, you know, they're not going to change quickly. You know, it's got to take some some uh, testing, some backup, some some uh, just showing clinically that this would be produce a better result before they actually move on this, you know. So it, it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, I, I want to say we're going to have to keep pushing on that. And, and Bill and I talked about that. Uh, you know, that's what we're doing today, right? <laughs> right, right. That's what we're here for. We're trying to get the word out. And I would imagine that's, you know, the first thing you need to do is have someone, well, maybe I'm wrong, uh, have someone develop the the type of antigen that you need. But the second thing would be to get the medical practitioners to request that. Um, or maybe it's the other way around. If the medical practitioners are requesting it, but it's not available, uh, maybe that would push the developer or the manufacturers to to have these available. I'm not sure which way we go. What do you think, Bill? I think that's exactly right, Joe. We, we are working uh, with um, a, 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 a pulmonologist, Dr. Kainer, um, and um, one of the allergists um, from New York City um, to, to um, uh, set up meetings with um, um, the, the uh, clinical labs uh, and with the uh, antigen extract manufacturers. And um, we have good reason to believe that we'll at least have an audience um, and we'll be able to um, explain to them um, what this study uh, indicates, and, and uh, hopefully um, um, the, the, the people from uh, Arab, um, which is the, the Association of Research and University um, um, Practitioners, or um, um, Chris, what does that P stand for? Um, anyway, pathologists. Huh? Pathologists. Pathologists, correct. Okay. Um, those guys um, uh, would certainly be interested, given their, their qualifications, uh, in in uh, in this um, these findings, and, and we do have an audience that, that we we will be setting up with them in the near future to discuss it. And uh, similarly, uh, with um, one of the major um, uh, antigen extract um, manufacturers, uh, we, we should have an audience very soon. With, uh, that's again driven by uh, uh, one of the allergists that. that that considers this to be um, Im important to, to try to push to get um, the, the necessary antigen extracts um, uh, considered um, for production um, by the major producers. Very interesting. Let's go to the roundup, John. The roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. Okay, let's go back to uh, Dr. Berg. Michael, what the, I want to go back to your conversation with the other group within Eurofins that manufactures these extracts. And I'm curious, did you get any sense of how much it costs to do the type of work necessary to put together this, uh, you know, a different antigen? Yeah, I think, I think the, the main problem here is that it, it requires a little more clinical evidence that this would really be better. And, and some of the arguments that are being made is, for example, cross-reactivity, right? We haven't touched on that at all here, that uh, uh, there is some research and, and we're not the experts on it, but uh, it's known that if, if you use one extract, it might cross-react with another species. Uh, so so allergy, uh, allergic reactions are, are, are fairly complex, is, is the point. And, and we, we don't try to, uh, you know, try to explain that we're not the experts on it, but it's my understanding that, that this is a fairly complex system that um, depending on 
what type of protein, if it's a recombinant protein that's manufactured, or if you, if you uh, gain it from uh, an extraction and enrichment of, of certain proteins from a species, it might make a difference on, on the immune reaction and there may be cross-reactivity to other species or, or uh, other uh, genera of species. So um, I think that they would like the idea that uh, now there's a data set that kind of lets them know what's, what's commonly known. But uh, my understanding was that there would have to be a little more clinical evidence that this would really be better and this would make a, a you know, better a mix of extracts uh, at the end before they actually consider a switch. I mean, it's not cheap, but the, the research on that is, is, the one, is the part that makes it expensive, I think. Well, you bring up a great point, one that I was going to get to, actually. I, I wasn't sure if, you know, when you have an extract for Aspergillus niger, does it also show that someone may have allergy to other types of Aspergillus? And what you're saying now is that maybe there's mixed evidence on that? Yes. And, and uh, uh, again, the details are not our field of expertise, but there are some publications, of course, that we have reviewed. And it really depends on the type of protein that you extract. So, so one organism, one species can produce different proteins then. And uh, they may cross-react with other, uh, well, they, there's maybe a cross-reactivity uh, in the uh, immune response uh, when you use uh, one, you're allergic to, you may be allergic to, to uh, more than one at the same time, you know? So right. it's, it's a complex system. That, that's the point that we want to make, but uh, we want to kind of stick to what we know which is you know, the indoor air quality and what fungi do we find in the first place to help the, the clinical community. But it, sure. is an, it is an important point. Oh, go ahead. Uh, it is an important point. And uh, on page 752 of the article, uh, we, we did devote a paragraph to it. And uh, there are a number of researchers who have looked into the cross-reactivity issue. Um, and uh, we, we did the best with the knowledge that we have. We're not experts in this area, but... Um, the, the information that uh, we were able to, to find in the, in the peer-reviewed literature um, would suggest that um, there's not a lot of potential for cross-reactivity um, among uh, the major uh, eight antigen extracts or, or antigens um, or uh, mold species that we found uh, in, the, uh, in the indoor air. Uh, but as Michael said, we're not experts in this area, but for those who may be interested, uh, there are four good references there. Um, on page 752, that would be worth reading. And let me ask first, Chris, was there anything you wanted to add for anything at all we discussed today? I, I think you made an excellent point earlier, Joe, you, you, when you'd asked, you know, about how does this uh, change come about? And, and just to, you know, add one thing to that, when you were asking, does it come from the demand from the physicians first, or does it come from the other way? And I, I think that that's really a key point is, you know, the data is a really um, helpful thing to provide to the antigen extract manufacturers, but we really need the advocacy of the clinicians that will really help to drive this change. So I think that's a really important point. And Bill, what's the feedback been so far from the medical community? I mean, we talked to Mike about, you know, at least one manufacturer of these extracts, but uh, have you heard anything from the medical community since this was published? We, we have. We've heard um, both from Dr. Kaner on, uh, on the pulmonology side and from um, Dr. Feingold on the allergist side. And we're working with uh, both of those physicians in, in um, meeting with um, the, the, um, the clinical labs in the case of the pulmonology group uh, and, and, uh, and with the allergen extract manufacturers in, 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 in the case of the allergist group. So um, stay tuned because um, it's, it's not going to be... Um, uh, a, a, a fast journey. Um, as, as you asked the question before, we can see where um, there could be hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in, involved in, um, in developing uh, an uh, an extract that, that, that was actually reflective of what is found in the indoor environment. There's a, a lot of um, uh, knowledge that's required in order to, to really um, uh, develop um, a, uh, an antigen extract that's reflective of what's found in the indoor environment. And we, we, we believe there, there, there's likely to be a difference between um, the proteins that are predominant in the outdoor 
um, uh, species uh, and that the same species in the, in the indoor environment may, um, may need to be looked at um, you know, differently than the outdoor uh, version of that same species. But that goes beyond our, our knowledge of our pay grade. And um, you know, it's gonna take some, some very um, you know, knowledgeable mycologists to, um, to figure that out. Great. Uh, you know, this is fascinating. And, and I, if I'm not mistaken, you didn't receive any funding for this study, Bill. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's correct, Joe. So you did this all on your own. And then, Michael, you and your offense contributed your work again uh, gratis? Yes. All right. Well, this, that's fascinating because, you know, once you get something started, it comes from the practice side. Now we put it out there and hopefully the research side will, will see uh, maybe some further studies that need to be done and maybe they can get funding for it. And we can do a little bit more. Is that kind of what you were thinking about with this process is where do we go from here? We, we are hopeful that that's the case, Joe. And, and you know, you and I uh, uh, were attendees and, and presenters at, um, at that conference that was hosted by um, uh, Richard Shaughnessy and his group um, that was supported by the, the, um, the, the, Stoll, um, found the Stoll Foundation. And um, uh, but do I have that right? Um, yep. Is that is that who was supporting that? Uh, that, that yes, Sloan. I believe Sloan funded that practice research. We met a lot of people there um, who were very smart and who were leading researchers, and um, we have uh, sent. The article now to, to those people and we're following up with them we've got some some good feedback um and, and we, we would like to get that the academic community um who knows how to go out and get that kind of funding to be able to support the necessary studies to be able to, to do what michael is saying uh, is necessary to, to really pique the interest of the um antigen extract manufacturers so um it's going to be a process and um we're going to stick with it very good cliff do you have any final questions or thoughts no, it's something I never really thought about, but I kind of feel bad for anyone who, you know, went through the testing and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, the testing wasn't precise enough to find what was wrong with them, you know, so it's, uh, I kind of feel bad about that. Well, let's go around the horn real quick before we go. Anything we missed? Any final thoughts? Let's start with you, uh, Michael. Well, I just want to uh, kind of reiterate, this is uh, the to our knowledge, the largest data set compiled, and we, we understand there's some limitation. It wasn't set up as an experiment, right? We're going retroactive to what have we got and what can we provide, but it's the largest data set. And we, we I mean, we stated limitations. Yes, we only see what grows on culture. Yes, you know, it's not experimental design, but uh, at the end, it's the largest set. And, and we do think it has valued, valued information for you know, allergists in the clinical community, hopefully. And how large is it again? Uh, we, we have in the Aspergillus uh, uh, close to 25,000 samples included. Okay. And what about with the full set? Uh, that was, um, Bill, do you remember? Was It was only right, a little over 3,000. Yeah, 3,000. Okay. That's still, that's still something. Bill, final thoughts? We went into this thinking that um, these are, uh, this allergy testing is, is, is overly subject to false negatives. And um, when, as Cliff just said, um, th these false negatives give um, the, the patients the sense that they're not um, allergic to, um, to mold. And um, in, in many cases, um, I would say in more than half the investigations that we conduct, uh, we're, we're looking at um, mold growth that's in you know, we, we, we're in multi-million dollar homes um, that are seemingly pristine. Um, and for those folks, um, the, the, uh, the antigen testing, the allergy testing for mold is critical for them to know that there's a need for someone to dig deeper. And unfortunately, um, you know, that, that need is not um, being recognized nearly as often as it should be. And Chris, let me go to you for final thoughts or comments. Well, I'll tell you, Joe, just, you know, thank you to uh, you and Cliff for allowing us to come on and to share our findings with your audience. 
I appreciate you guys joining us. And um, I talked to Bill earlier. And for those of you that know Bill and know of him, they've been doing a lot of work, Bill, Chris, and his group in schools, um, especially now with the, the COVID issue and trying to help schools with making a safer environment for kids. So we're going to bring you guys back uh, a little later in the year, uh, probably in this fall. And maybe we could talk a little bit more about what you're finding out there in the real world of practice uh, dealing with schools and COVID. That'd be a pleasure, Joe. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guests, Dr. Michael Berg, Chris McRutt, and Dr. Bill Southern. I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls, most importantly, our growing group of loyal audience, and uh, of course, our sponsors. We're going to take a little break next Friday. We're going to take a break. I want everybody to have a fantastic, happy 4th of July birthday of this great country. Also, uh, in two weeks from now, we'll be back. We're going to do a study on the, uh, or we're going to do a show on why indoor chemistry matters. We've got three great guests from the National Academy of Sciences uh, work that was done on why indoor, indoor chemistry matters. And then we'll follow that up with Charlie Weschler on very uh, talking again about chemistry and of indoor environments and restoration and so forth. So please come back and join us in two weeks for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 